Parents, have you ever done this before? Have you ever asked a question to your child, but you already knew the answer? Right? Like, we, we've done that before. We kind of use, it's kind of a trap question, right? We want to see if our child is going to answer us the way that we hope that they would. Trap questions are questions that are designed for the, to get the respondent into giving a certain answer or admitting a certain accusation. Trap questions are used to detect or test someone's honesty. And so we ask these questions to see if our kids are going to be honest with us, right? And I'll admit, I do this to Abraham often, just to see what he does. He's like, what, you're talking about me? Yes. And so I'll say, Abraham, did you eat all those fries that we asked you to eat? And he'll say, yeah, I ate them all. I'm like, are you sure you ate them all? He's like, yeah. You didn't throw any of them away? It gets quiet. And the only reason I know he threw them away is because I watched him throw it away. And so we're trying to see if he's going to be honest in that situation. Another time, I asked Abraham, how was your day at school today? He said, it was good. I'm like, are you sure? He's like, yeah, it was good. You didn't go to the office for anything? Gets quiet and had to, gets turned down. As long as the only reason I know this is because I was in my office when he was going to the office. And so these are just ways that we can hopefully get our kids to kind of learn from these moments. That to be honest, even if the consequences may, uh, may come. Because we hope that we can kind of help them grow into this godly man and woman that God has created them to be, to live this life of integrity. And so this is a similar situation that's going to happen in our text this morning. That Jesus finds himself put on the spot with this trap question by the expert in the law. However, the expert isn't really trying to help Jesus. He isn't really trying to, um, to, to give him a life lesson. Instead, he's trying to discredit Jesus and what he's doing. These religious leaders and experts in the law want their power back. They want the focus to be back on them instead of this so-called Messiah instead. So unlike my son, Jesus really isn't caught off guard by this question. We know this because in typical Jesus fashion, he kind of uses it as a moment to teach, not just the religious leaders, but also the crowd that was around them. So if you have our Bibles this morning, we're going to be in Luke chapter 10, and we're going to look at 25 to 37. So once you flip to your place in Luke, would you please stand with me if you're able for the reading of our Lord. In Luke chapter 10, verses 25 to 37. It says, on one occasion, as the expert in the law stood up to test Jesus, he says, teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law, he replied, how do you read it? He said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied, do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself, so he said, we asked Jesus, who is my neighbor? In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. 
A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed on the other side. So too a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went over to him, bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. The word of our God. Praise be to God. You may be seated. So we see in our passage, Jesus is getting asked a question about how one can inherit eternal life. This isn't unfamiliar to Jesus, right? He's always getting asked questions. Some of these questions are one that come from a genuine desire to learn, a genuine desire for truth. We think of the woman at the well in this, uh, this holy water, this living water, that I will never be thirsty again. Or the rich young ruler who truly wanted to know how to inherit the kingdom of God. However, other questions were thrown at Jesus in hopes to trap him. Trap him into saying something heretical, something that they could discredit him with. Mark's account is the former. It seems like the teacher of the law is wanting to really understand. He really wants to learn and know the truth. However, in Matthew's account, the religious leader was hammering Jesus with these questions in an attempt to discredit him, in an attempt to hopefully stop this movement that he was ushering in. But instead of Jesus answering the question, he asked the lawyer a question. It's typical of Jesus, right? Instead of answering the question, he always answers it with a question. What is written in the law and how do you read it? In the other two accounts, Jesus is answering this question of how to inherit eternal life. Well, here we see the, the lawyer is answering it. And all these accounts have the same exact answer. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind. And love your neighbor as yourself. This is an answer that the lawyer, that the lawyer gives will sound very familiar to any devout Jewish person, right? This is a prayer that they pray as a child twice a day, sometimes even more during festivals. The answer that he gives comes from Deuteronomy 6, 4 to 5, and is known as the Shema. It is known as the Shema because of the very first word of the verse. Listen, hear. It functions as this pledge of allegiance and also this hymn of praise for the Israelite people. Hear, O God, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. This word Shema, this word listen or hear, isn't just letting sound kind of enter into your ears, right? It's allowing the words to kind of sink in, allow them to be, allow them to provide understanding, and allow for you to respond from it. 
In other words, in Hebrews, hearing and doing are the basically the same things. We all have children, right? And we could probably spend five minutes talking to them about everything that we need to do for the day, right? We need to clean up the house. We need to do some laundry. We need you to clean your room. We have to run out to the store and do, do these errands. And then after you talk to them for about five minutes, they're going to look up to you with this blank face of like, what would you say? Were you, were you talking to me? Right? We, we've all been there before. And I'll, and I'll be honest. If I'm watching the game while I'm playing video games and Joy is talking to me, it's just like sound entering into my ears. I'm not really listening, if I'm honest. <laughs> I'm glad we can all be honest. <clears throat> but this is what the prophets, the Hebrew prophets, were saying to the Israelites when they were saying that they have ears, but they are not listening, especially when they were breaking the covenant commands and promises with God. For Hebrews, listening and doing are two sides of the same coin. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And so to get a little bit more understanding about what this love actually is, especially for the Hebrew, prof- uh, for the Hebrew people, for the Israelites, Tim Mackey, a scholar from the Bible Project, kind of helps us understand it more, that context more of love. He says here, love isn't the simple, warm, fuzzy, emotional energy that we feel when we like somebody. Like, it isn't the schoolyard crush that we had when we were younger, right? It wasn't that warm, fuzzy feeling I got when I liked Julia in college. And then she strung me along for a whole semester. We won't go into that, but that's not the warm, fuzzy feeling that he's talking about here in the Bible. It's much bigger. In the Bible, love is action. You love somebody when you act in loyalty and faithfulness. For Israel to move meant faithful obedience to the text of their covenant relationship between them and God. Those terms are laid out in the laws and the commandments that make up Deuteronomy, especially chapters 12 to 26. Obedience to these laws are never meant to be about legalism or trying to earn God's favor. But unfortunately, that's what it ended up to be, which was never the intent. Obedience in the Old Testament is about love and listening It's about action. We heard last week from James 1, he talks about being doers of the word. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Right? It's just like the person looks in the mirror and goes away and immediately forgets what they look like. The Shema requires action, continual action. So when Jesus says, do this, live into this, he's saying, pay attention, this is important. The important thing to God's kingdom is love for him with our entire being. And that love is seen in obedience to him. And it's not just for him, love for our neighbor as well. And that love is a genuine love and concern for one of, for one of our fellows, people, A commitment and a loyalty which manifests itself in obedience to the will of God and the assistance for our neighbors. I love this theory of love that uh, a good pastor friend of mine has been working with. He's kind of been building this theory of love. 
He says, love is a series of little choices you make every day for the sake of the beloved. It's a choice, a decision. I can tell my wife every day that I love her. And I believe that she believes that I do love her. It all just depends on how much I've annoyed her that day that she really believed me. But when I put that word love into action, when I do the dishes or the laundry without her asking me to do it, it becomes more. Love becomes tangible. Just like there must be action in loving our Lord with our entire being, the same is true with loving our neighbor as ourself. So let's be honest. This answer that Jesus told the lawyer was correct was sufficient enough to answer that question, right? Love God, love your neighbor. But the lawyer just wasn't going to give up, right? He wasn't going to give up. Maybe he was embarrassed because he didn't trip Jesus up, or maybe uh, because he answered his own question, right? Maybe he's looking foolish in front of his, his, his buddies, and so he's like, I know how I can trip up Jesus, a last-ditch effort to, to try and trap Jesus. So Jesus, who is my neighbor then, right? He thinks he, he pulled a fast one on Jesus. And so I believe this is a fair question, right? Even though the intent behind it wasn't the greatest, I believe this is a fair question because if we are reading this in just our personal uh, devotion time and our personal reading of Scripture, we can come to that same answer, right? If we're reading all this, you're like, okay, yeah, who is our neighbor in all of this? Who are we called to love? And so Jesus answers with that parable, the parable of the Good Samaritan. Jesus starts by saying there's a man traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho. They say that this journey between Jericho and Jerusalem was notoriously dangerous, right? This 14-mile this treacherous journey, a barren road, is what... The, what they have to travel. And so I want you to think about this. This man is traveling, and he's, he's, he's traveling down this road. Portions of this uh, passage are narrow with pretty good um, spots, opportune spots for robbers and thieves to hide in in order to attack whoever comes down. So I want you to imagine, just like Jesus puts out for us, this man walking down, and he now gets attacked. And now he's laying there half-dead, not really expecting anyone to show up to rescue him. And so he's probably thinking to himself, like, what am I going to do? No one's here to rescue me. And then he hears the sounds of footsteps approaching him. And it just so happened that a priest was returning home from, uh, from Jericho after his priestly duties. The man is saved, right? And that's what he thinks. Surely this priest would tend to my wounds and, and rescue me. And as the, the priest approaches the man, he sees that he is beaten, that his, his clothes are kind of torn up and tattered from being attacked. And he can't really make out, like, who this man is. Can't really tell his nationality. He can't really tell his status of wealth because his clothes are all torn up because of how severely he was beaten. And then something strange happens. The man hears that the priest is just continuing to walk away. He doesn't stop to help him. He leaves him dead. But why? Why would the priest do that? There's some things that we can kind of gather through our further study of this. And perhaps it's because of the ritual and purity laws that they had as priests. This law states that priests cannot come in contact with a dead body. 
Even coming into the presence of a dead body would make him ritually unclean. Although we know that he's a dead man, the priest didn't. And so he just wasn't going to risk it, maybe. There are some laws and situations that allow priests to come into the contact with the dead body, but for some reason, he didn't help him. Maybe he thought the robbers were still around, so he didn't want to be attacked next. All these are reasonable thoughts, but the text does not suggest which one. But for whatever reason, he decides to keep walking. What happens next? The man was lucky that one person came. They couldn't be even lucky to have another person come by. And that's exactly what happened. He heard footsteps. And then we see that a Levite has also making his journey home from Jerusalem. A Levite is a temple assistant. They are underneath priests and hold similar purity restrictions, but not too strict. The Levite sees the injured man, and maybe for the same reasons as the priests that kind of flood through his mind about having to go through all these rituals to get clean again, about possibly there'd be an attacker nearby, he decides to do as the priest did and pass by the injured man. And so at this point in the story, the Jewish people are probably connecting some dots in their mind. They're probably kind of assuming what the possibility of what was going to come next. Two highly regarded Jewish people pass by, so obviously the next person is to be this ordinary Jewish person. We could even expect or read that who was going to come next and what was going to happen we all read The Three Little Pigs, right? We all know that story from childhood or from reading it to our kids, right? The first pig builds his house out of straw. The big bad wolf comes and huffs and he puffs and he blows it down. And then the second pig runs to the next pig's house. It's made of sticks. Big bad wolf comes, huffs and he puffs and he blows it down. And so both pigs run to the third pig's house, which is made of brick. The big bad wolf huffs and he puffs, but he can't blow it down. The same principle is here. The religious leader sees an injured man, fails to do something, and then obviously a third person is going to be the hero, right? The savior of this injured man. The ordinary Israelite is going to do what the religious leaders failed to do. And now it is up to the lay Israelite to fulfill the law. Okay, Jesus, we get what you're doing here. Show love and compassion to our neighbor. The word philegion means neighbor or friend in Greek, and it fits to any member of the Hebrew nation. We get what you're doing here, Jesus. We know what's going to happen. And so now the third person arrives on the scene, and it's not the ordinary Israelite person. It's a Samaritan. Dun, dun, dun. Audible gasps ring out from the crowd, I'm sure. Jaws are hitting the ground. Did Jesus just say a Samaritan came? Jesus, what could a Samaritan ever teach us about loving our neighbor? This was a huge plot twist, something that they were not expecting. If you didn't know, Jewish people and Samaritan people weren't too fond of each other. In fact, they hated each other. If we had a modern-day analogy to this, it'd be like the Boston Red Sox and the New York Yankees, right? 
the Boston Red Sox, the good, righteous people of God, and the New York Yankees, the despicable, unrighteous, evil people. Whoever are Yankee fans, I'm sorry. <laughs> it's, it's in the Bible, I'm sorry. <laughs> but to put it even to more levels, if the Jewish people were traveling to Jerusalem, they would go out of their own way to go around Samaria. Like, they didn't want to step foot in that land. That's how much they despise these people. And if we're ever traveling anywhere, um, we, we kind of put the address into our phones, right? And it kind of gives us three options to go, right? It gives us the quickest route. It kind of gives us one that has maybe a board of toll um, here and there. But then it has this long scenic route, right? That adds like an hour and a half to your trip. And I'm, one, I'm thinking, like, why, does people, why do people use that? Like, I don't want to add time to my trip. I want to get there as quickly as possible. It made me think back to when I was going to college. Uh, when I went to ENC, I'd always travel up 95, and once I went, reached New Haven, I'd take 91, and 91 would take me to 90, and I'd go through Boston to get to ENC. And I did that a couple of times as I was traveling to ENC, and then one day, uh, I totally missed that exit in New Haven and continued up 95. And uh, when I did that, I actually went through Rhode Island, the, the route it was taking me, I completely missed Rhode Island. And it added more to my time. It added more tolls to my, to my trip. And so as I continued up 95, I found that it was shorter, it was easier, and it didn't have any tolls. And I'm like, why did I go the other way before? And so this is similar to what the Jewish people did. They would rather take that extra time in order to avoid the Samaritan people at any cost. And to make the version even shorter, they didn't like the Samaritan people because they didn't think that they were fully Jewish. They didn't think that they were fully Jewish. They didn't know how to, to worship God correctly. They didn't, know, they didn't worship in the right place. They kind of saw them as these mud blood people. They're not fully pure like the Jewish people thought that they were, thought that they are. And so there's significant racial and ethnic tension in this story. Kind of, sound, kind of familiar to today. So this Samaritan comes along, and the Jewish people are holding their breath because they don't think that this mudblood is going to do anything or teach them anything about loving. And maybe this is where we hear those audible gasps that come in because Jesus said that the Samaritan sees the man and is moved with compassion. If there's anything to get upset with, that was it. We see that the injured man is patched up, placed on a donkey, and is taken to an inn where he can recover. And the Samaritan even gives extra and promises to return and pay whatever extra charge may occur. Jesus then asked the lawyer, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The lawyer says, the one who showed compassion. He couldn't even say the Samaritan because of that great rift between the two groups of people. Jesus says, go and do likewise. So again, we get the idea that this, this requires action. If we're going to love God and love neighbor, then we need to do the same as the Samaritan did and put that love into action. So this jumps back to our question, who is our neighbor 
We get this from Leviticus 19, where it says, Do not nurse hatred in your heart for any of your relatives, Jewish um, Hebrew brothers. Confront people directly so you will not be held guilty for their sin. Do not seek or bear a grudge against a fellow Israelite, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Jesus uses this word neighbor. The first thought that came to the lawyer's mind is his fellow Hebrew community. The words your brother or your people in Leviticus make it clear that the expert understood neighbor to refer to other Jews, and more particularly other Jews who had remained faithful to God's covenant. So who was my neighbor? Well, it's obvious, right? My brothers and sisters in Christ. They are my friends. They are the people who look like me, think like me, and have the same beliefs as me. That's my neighbor, right? However, the lawyer just answered Jesus and said that a Samaritan was a neighbor to this man. We don't know much about the man who was beaten. Some say that he actually was Jewish. I mean, he was coming from Jerusalem. He could have been Jewish. But if that was the case... Then it puts the Levite and the priests in even worse light because they left a fellow kinsman to die. But Jesus is saying that this person, a Samaritan, who doesn't look like the injured man, and by historical sake, for historical sake, hates him, is being the neighbor here because he shows compassion and shows mercy for him. So it looks like my neighbor is the white person who wears that red hat that says, Make America Great Again. My neighbor is the black person who holds up a sign that says black lives matter. My neighbor is the single mom who's trying to wrangle three wild kids in a grocery store. It's that dirty, clothed man standing at the stoplight begging for change. You know, the one that we try to avoid making eye contact at? It's the coworker who makes it pretty blatantly obvious what he or she believes. That is my neighbor the one who we are called to love, the people who look like us, think like us, believe like us, but also the ones who don't. The Samaritan saw the needs of an injured man and put that man's needs above his own. Again, we might don't know much about that man, even though majority believes that he was a Jewish person. And if that person was a Jewish person, then the Samaritan crossed racial and ethnic barriers to show love for his enemy. He showed mercy, he showed compassion. And as we had just learned from the greatest commands, God is calling us to do the same. It's easy to love people who look like us, who act like us and think the same way that we do, but it takes a lot of work loving the people who don't. It's those EGR people, you know, Extra grace required. You know, the ones that just don't, just kind of rub us the wrong way. The ones that don't think or live the same way that we do. It's much easier to love them from a distance, right? I'm going to love you from over here. You stay over there. It's easier to do that. This theory of love is easy, right? Just love people, but the act is difficult. We try to find loopholes, right? God commands me to love you, but he said nothing about liking you. But if we think that way, if we don't like them, are we really loving them? 
The same pastor friend put it beautifully when he said, how can we love a God who we can't see, yet fail to like a person who is created in the image of God that we can see? It just doesn't work. We must demonstrate love that goes beyond, beyond emotion, beyond theory, a love that is demonstrated in commitments, those little choices we make every day for the sake of the beloved. It isn't enough to just say, or, or, or it isn't enough to just to see other people's needs and say, oh, that's tough. Or I don't know how they're going to get through that one. And then carry on with our life. It's about seeing people's needs and asking, how can I meet that need? And the only way this can happen is if we're ready to get uncomfortable. We need to start having conversations with neighbors who don't look or think like we do. And decide to make little choices every day for the sake of the beloved. If we truly want to be perfect, as our Heavenly Father is perfect, then we shouldn't be looking for loopholes or excuses. We shouldn't, for, we shouldn't be looking to do the bare minimum. We should be loving despite what people look, think, and believe like. We should start by showing the same love and grace that the Samaritan showed the injured person. So as Aaron comes to kind of play um, our final song, our closing song, it's a song that's pretty simple in its words. The words, uh, it's called, With All My Heart. And it says, with all my heart, with all my soul, with all my strength, I will love you. I will, I will love you as my neighbor. I'll love my neighbor as myself. My prayer for us today is that we can truly proclaim those words. That we love God and that we love our neighbor as ourselves. The Good Samaritan is one of four parables that are called example parables, right? What these have in common is that all provide a narrative example of how one should live or how one should not live. And after hearing this example, the lawyer was told to go and do the same. And so my prayer is that we can go and do the same. And I always have trouble with how I'm going to close um, a sermon or, or a message. Because um, I don't know where people are. But I believe that as we were talking about our neighbor, that there are faces that popped up into our mind. The people that just came across. And so I pray that as we sing this song, that we can really truly love those people that came across our mind. Not just love them because God told us to, but because we genuinely want what's best for them. And so as we sing through this song, I pray that it can be your prayer this morning. And again, I don't know where your heart's at. Maybe um, it's to be able to forgive that person, to be able to work through whatever it is. Um, but I just pray that you can sing these words um, with a true open heart. And if you need to, the altars are open. Um, you can spend as much time here. We, we don't rush church. We don't rush, the, we don't rush these things. But um, I just pray that we can, can sing this song with a clear and open heart to love God 
and to love our neighbors. That's going to be our benediction, that we can go forward saying that, Lord, I love you with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength, and I will love my neighbor. So pray with me. Heavenly Father, we're so thankful that we get to be together and in your house this morning, Lord, and that we get to hear this example that your son Jesus gave us to show us how we could live this life that is holy and pleasing and acceptable in your eyes, Lord. And it all comes down to two of the greatest commandments you have given us, Lord. To love you with all of our being, Lord. A love that requires us to take action. And to love our neighbor as ourself. A love that goes beyond the barriers that we have put up in our world. So, Father, I pray, Lord, as we go today, Lord, that we can continue to sing this song as we go, Lord. That we'll love you with everything that we are and that we will love the people who are created in your image just like we love you, Father. There's no other way of doing it, Father. So Father, help us as we go to love even the people that just kind of rub us the wrong way. Help us to show love to those people because it's all through your strength that we're able to do any of this, Father. So keep us as we go, Lord, and help us to love you with everything and to love your people just the same. We ask this in your son's precious and holy name. Amen. You're dismissed.
Yes, I will love my name. 